Pastor Eric, if you could start us in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that your mercy and grace is new every morning. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word in freedom. And I pray, Lord, as we study about Jesus being the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, you'd help us to greatly understand your promise, promises that you have for us. I pray that you'd help us to understand who Christ is better. I pray uh, for Bob that you continue to use his voice. We thank you for his healing and restoration. And be with us. Help us to think well on your text. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. This morning, we are going to do a little foray into Luke in order to get us back into Luke X. And so, after talking a little bit more about these categories that I didn't get to the last time I taught Sunday school concerning language about God, Eric dealt with it on a Wednesday night, but We'll bring that up. And then we're going to go to the Mount of Transfiguration and really get into the significance of it. There are several things that happen in Luke X. Actually, the whole thing is just unbelievable from the beginning to the end. But just the prefiguring, the reviews and previews, the echoes from the Old Testament, things that come up in Luke that you wonder why it's telling us that, and then later in Acts you find out why. Luke was an amazing writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and I hope that I can do a little justice to the glories of the gospel as found in Luke Acts. And so today, the key issue is going to be how Jesus Christ, who is the virgin-born Son of God, God the Son, the Creator, how He speaks bindingly for God and in some of the ways that that's prefigured in the Old Testament. And then that will give us a pretty good idea of how God speaks to us and what we need to know and what implications we have. And so that's why I'm going to go back to a slide we didn't get to the last time I taught Sunday school. Language about God. Now, here's why this comes up. In church history, there was a discussion about can we really know anything about God? If God is transcendent and omniscient and a total different order of being than we are, which he is, eternal and so on, well then... How is human language that we use to talk to each other meaningful when we're talking about God? And so I looked at a video that R.C. Sproul did on this. I don't know when it was originally recorded. It was in a, on a YouTube. And he was talking about Aquinas in church history had dealt with this and said that we can know truth about God because of the validity of analogical terminology. So that's the issue. Now I realize that what's binding is only what's taught in scripture. But issues come up in church history that seek to undermine scripture. And we have to be prepared to fight back. Because Satan is going to tell us has God said one thing you can say about the devil, 
He's consistent. Or somebody said uh, when I was in Bible college, uh, well, you can say something good about everybody. Somebody said, even the devil? He said, yeah, well, he sticks to his job. (laughs) Now, that's a very evil, wicked job, but he's consistent because he told the lie to Eve. He told it to Jesus, and he's telling it still in the book of Revelation. He's the liar and the accuser. He tells Eve, you can sin and not die. Then he spends the rest of history telling God, they're sinners, you have to destroy them. You have to condemn them. The accuser. He entices to sin and then accuses us before God. That's the devil. All right. So he consistently does that. But what do we know? So the devil inspires people in church history to say, you can't know what God said. That's exactly what happened with Eve. You can't know. It's totally other. It's gibberish. It's meaningless. Or then they say, well, we know there can be no miracles because of rationalism. You know, the uniformity cause and effect in a closed system. All of these things to get us to doubt that we can believe what God said. And so I'm basing Luke-Acts teaching on just the opposite. God has spoken. And in particular, in these last days, he's spoken through his son. And so when we see these echoes from the Old Testament, it's just glorious. Luke 4.18 is so key where Jesus announced release from those who are in bondage. That goes back to Isaiah. So, univocal terminology would mean terms used to describe God, and if we tried to apply that to creatures and God in the same way, in the same respect, we would be talking foolishly. God is other. So if we claim that Creatures are also God. We're wrong. So when we say God is loving, he is loving. But God being loving in regard to God being God is above and beyond anything that's true about us. We're loving until we have a bad day. (laughs) Well, that's just me. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you feel bad, but. I'm so kind and patient, and then all of a sudden, not. But God is infinitely what he is. And Eric, I want you to feel free to add whatever's lacking or correct whatever's wrong in what I have to say here. And so there's different ways to use this, but I'm using this to defend the Bible against those who claim that all language about God is compromised or is guilty of equivocation. And so if you can say the Bible is meaningless, you can strip it of its authority and power and convince people not to listen. So they would say, if we describe God in creatures, we're equivocating. Analogical, which is what Sproul was talking about in that video I watched, terms used to describe God apply to creatures and God 
meaningfully according to their particular being. And the Bible says God is love, and it commands us to love one another. It doesn't mean that a human obeying God and loving others is loving in the same total exact sense that God is. Because we're a different order of being. This is what Sproul was talking about. Now, I think I've illustrated this not too long ago when we, when we deal with pets. People nowadays, for some reason, dogs are a big deal. Everything's about dogs. So, so I can't tell you what the farm was like. 1950s on the farm, dogs were strays. They came around, they came in. Nobody ever paid money for a dog, I'll tell you that. And the rule on the farm, literally, the rule was this. Not one penny of veterinary money will ever be spent on a pet. Dad made that absolutely clear. That's how you go broke. The vet comes out, it's for a cow, a pig, a steer, pets, they can fend on their own. Some of them did actually pretty good on their own. But that's a whole different world. But nowadays, dogs are in on commercials on TV, TV are being given human characteristics. Remember when I mentioned that? They were trying to sell a car, so they show a dog behind the car. And they say, well, this car, you should buy our car because it's dog approved. Well, I know they were trying to use that irony. But it's so absurd. Had they done that in 1958, they'd never sold even one car. People say, you're so stupid, I wouldn't buy a car from you. (laughs) Well, what's the problem with that? Because in order to drive cars, you have to have rational capabilities that instinctive beasts don't have. And cannot have and never will have. Because... Did you see there was another video where a dog actually got into some little thing, three-wheel thing in China and drove it into a shop? I saw the video. It goes in. It was a, crashes into a shop, and everything's flying in glass, and it looks like nobody was in it. And then you keep watching, pretty soon a dog looks up. Well, see, the dog maybe accidentally put it into gear, but it's not rationally capable of turning around, stopping at a red light, taking a left, taking a right. So you can see how there's equivocation. You may do that for irony, but in reality, it's not even possible. Now, can a dog love its master? Yes, as far as being loyal and uh, wanting to be around you and so on and so forth. And you can see that with a lot of different kind of animals that are a different order of being like a well-trained horse or whatever. Even amongst animals, there's differences about how they react and respond to things. So analogically, we could say the dog loves his master. But that doesn't mean the dog is of the same order of being that a human being is. And one of the things that's going on now because of the uh, prominence of neo-paganism is that the pagans who used to say, well, you can't listen to any language about God because he's so other. Now they're getting rid of all of the categories and they're saying God, divine, human, 
animal, planet. It's all one. Pantheism. They've actually broken down every single possible barrier, and they literally come up with really highfalutin-sounding stuff to say you can't know anything. Eric and I have recorded four radio shows on this that will be broadcast, I think, in May on our CIC podcast. And we pulled out all the stops. And, Eric, i got to say, you're not very politically correct. (laughs) Not that I'm any better. (laughs) But we rebuked the leftist Marxist agenda on trying to erase all the categories. But, see, the neo-pagans don't want any categories. Remember I had a sermon, I show a picture of a, I took on the front lawn of a church down here, it says, we are the world. And my remark was, well, then why would you go there? See, you're already the world before you're ever a Christian. Just stay as you are, you're the world. You're lost, you're alienated from God, and you're bound for hell. But they don't believe that. They erase all the boundaries. So, The reason they want to erase boundaries is to deny a Christian worldview and to deny Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, God has spoken. So now it's all this mishmash. One thing we didn't get to in that radio series we did was when I wrote the book about Emergent, I had a chapter on this Ken Wilber, who's one of their brainchild uh, philosophers, and it gave you a headache trying to read it. And I, I finally found an interview of this Ken Wilber, the emergent or the New Age philosopher, or whatever he calls himself. And the person interviewing him said, Your stuff is so esoteric and so complicated and so highfalutin. We can't even understand the terms you're using. What do you th- suggest that we do if we can't understand your philosophy? Well, he said, It's easy, just meditate. I wrote that in one of my chapters. You don't have to do any thinking because in their worldview, all is one. And when you meditate, you shut off your mind and push all thoughts out of your mind or you say a meaningless term over and over and over again until you experience the oneness of the universe. And that's what drives it is the experience not the rational explanation because ultimately it's irrational and as Eric said when he did that Wednesday night on apologetics and as we've been saying a lot in some of our conferences over the years and debates the fact is we need human language and definitions of words and the law of non-contradiction to communicate anything And the people that write books to tell us the categories are invalid and that language is invalid have great big thick books. And if you couldn't understand their words, you couldn't read their book. So they're using what they're denying to sell their book. So it's inherently false. It would be nothing. It would be saying nothing. One guy who promoted rationality a lot and almost... Well, whatever. When I was in seminary, I wrote an article about this, about the validity of the law of non-contradiction. And this guy said, well, it's crazy to argue against it. He said, what if you just took your typewriter, this is in the old days, 
and typed the word SNERP, S-N-E-R-P, and then said, for the purpose of this essay, the word SNERP stands for everything in the dictionary. And then you just type a thousand times, SNERP, 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 your whole essay, turn it in. Well, we'd say, well, that's absurd. It is, but that's a... That's an implication of the idea that language isn't valid. Do you get that? And so we have to understand the world as God created it and what God has said. And we are humans created in the image of God. We're not God. We're not the creator. And we're not a valid object of anybody's worship. But we are created in God's image. And we are rational, and we can understand categories. Satan in the garden attacked all of that. Has God said? What did God say? Can you eat of all the trees? Well, no, we can't eat of this one. Oh, well, what makes you think these categories are valid? Now, I'm making a little story based on what Satan did with Eve or the serpent. See, because the knowledge of the tree, the knowledge imparted by this tree of good and evil versus all the rest of the trees are valid categories. In one case, you live. In the other case, you die. Living and dying aren't the same. But they deny that. Well, you won't die. What did Satan say? You won't die. Well, what will happen? You'll be like God. That's what they're saying today. You don't have to listen to God. It's all a big equivocation. So, see, when we use terms that are innately meaningless. That's what they're trying to say. You're just equivocating. You're changing it so it doesn't really mean anything. I was trying to think of a new illustration. People tend to use the same ones. So I was reading a little thing my mom gave me about how the town of Archer, Iowa, where I went to grade school, developed and got its name. And I thought about an easy way to illustrate equivocation. You could say, this person was an archer, and this person was from archer. In one case, it's a person, it means, archer means somebody who is expert with a bow and arrow. In the other case, it's a town. But if you don't make clear that you changed it, you wouldn't be saying anything. Archer, 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 archer. Is it a town? Or is it somebody that's good that went to the Olympics with the bow and arrow? It would be equivocating. So we need to understand Human language to survive on the earth. We have to identify the difference between food and poison. And it takes our rational mind to do it. Some of you may get offended when you hear Eric and I talk, but just be patient because we're showing how a lot of Christians unknowingly are giving up their rationality, not knowing that's what they're doing because they don't have the categories right. We need to distinguish. The only way humans can survive on the earth is to identify categories and live with it. Do you want to say anything about that, Eric? You know, I love this, Bob. Thank you for putting this slide together. You know, what's interesting, when you go to seminary, I was a brand new uh, seminarian going to Bethel. I left the airline industry, and what they do to you is the postmodern theologians that taught in the seminary, they only give you two options. 
And what they say to you is, well, if you can't speak univocally about God because you're not God, and you agree with them, yeah, I'm not God, I can't speak univocally about them, the only option they would give you is all you have is equivocation. The idea that you're just speaking meaningless. Um, Just as Bob said, I like to use the analogy, if I said to my son, um, it's cool outside, uh, put on a jacket, and he says, it's okay, Dad, I'm a cool cat. He's using cool differently than I'm using cool. That's equivocation. It ends up being meaningless. Just as Bob used the archer analogy, you're always speaking past what the issue is. So in the seminary, what they do is they give you two options. You're either speaking univocally, which you can't do because you're not God, or you're speaking meaningless, you're equivocating. They never give the person the third option, which is that he speaks by way of analogy. We know something of love. God is obviously a higher order being, but you know what it is to love your wife or a wife love her husband or love your children. Um, We know something of power. God is all-powerful, but we see some boats are more powerful than other boats, and some engines are more powerful than other engines, and some armies are more powerful than other armies. So we know something of God by way of analogy. So here's my point. If you have a loved one going to a seminary, what you have to be aware of is they're going to try to take analogical off the table. They won't even let them know about that. And they'll say either you're speaking univocally, which you can't do because you're not God, or you're equivocating, which is meaningless. Right. Therefore, you can't know. So Therefore, you can't meditate. know. Yep. I, Only two options. When I debated know. immersion, I called it the little engine that couldn't. <laughs> when I was a kid, we had a little book. I think I can. I think I can. Well, the immersion is, I know I can't. I know I can't. I'm sure I can't. I'm going to give up. Well, uh, didn't Jesus use analogies when he told uh, the stories? Oh, yeah, everything, the parables. Parables, yeah. yeah. Right, that's exactly right. Now, here is the thing that you need to know to remain an evangelical, if that term still means something, today. God chooses the analogy so that we can understand. It's like a person talking to their dog. The dog's not a human being, but there might be certain things that you choose that you know the dog will respond instinctively to. Like when you train animals, like good dog, and then you give them a treat. And you can train that way. Now good means more to you than it does to the dog, but the dog can figure out some. Uh, this is a good outcome, <laughs> but it's just it's instinctive. Yes, I was just kind of thinking about um, just the understanding of Scripture. We have logic, and that takes us to a point that God wants us, and that's a huge blessing. And then I was thinking, you know, but even some of the most respected people that we that we that logic that think that you know rationalize, like me and my dad were watching. What was the name of that? movie that we were watching that guy did? Uh, I don't, I, maybe he's not here, but it, oh, yes. uh, anyways, we were watching some movie and uh, yeah, and it was uh, it, but it was like, one of his parables was really good and how he explained it and went into Jewish history and just, and it was like, it just you know, how the spirit rejoices with the truth and teaches us things and it was just like, wow that, that is really beneficial. And the next one I was kind of like you know, maybe he's right, maybe he's not. He sure knows a lot of Greek. He sure knows the tenses, but I don't know if he's getting the right point here. And and I, and I was thinking, like, God will teach us, and I mean, but it's like we can't, um, you know, get there without. Well, see, so we don't grace. understand it until we understand 
the categories. All learning is about categories. See, and the reason this is an attack, what, what uh, Dr. Schaefer said, it was a, an attack against reason or the death attack against humans created in God's image. Let me try to explain it this way. Eric and I did this on the radio. What the New Age, or whatever they call it now, the, the neo-pagans, I call it, they would like you to think that the Garden of Eden is out there if we could just see it. The Bible says that God kicked Adam and Eve out, right? And now thistles are going to grow. The new neo-pagans are saying, no, no, no. You see, if you're a farmer and you're going, thistles are growing, my family is going to starve if that's all this field grows, so I've got to deal, figure out how to get rid of thistles and get wheat to grow so I can make flour, then that's the reality we're in since the fall. The neo-pagans are saying, meditate until you're one with nature and you'll become like God. And you won't have to have distinguishing categories. Now we have the whole world and the whole world is full of what can make you healthy or can poison you and the only way for humans to know the difference is to use reason. We have not been equipped with instinct like the beasts. That's what they're called, instinctive beasts. If, if we were just, we knew nothing and were thrown out into the jungle and left there for 20 years, we'd never stay 20 years because we'd die. We have to know categories using logic or we can't communicate, we can't be engineers, we can't be salesmen, we can't be cooks, we can't be anything. You can't run the sound, you can't make a PowerPoint. Everything humans do is dependent on language, logic, and categories. The New Agers will say, or the, the neo-Orthodox in theology, well, no, you can't. You just have to take a blind leap. So you have an existential experience of God, but if you try to define what it was, then you just ruined it. Uh, yes, Eric. You know, there's many different ways people lie, and we could, we could probably have a whole series on different forms of lying, but one of them is false dichotomy. False dichotomy, and that's kind of what, what we're talking about here a little bit. In other words, if language doesn't communicate meaning perfectly, well, then there's no point in language. Right. If I can't be God, and I'm not yeah. happy. Yeah. That, that's exactly what was going on with Eve. Luann wants it, and then I, I better get to what I was supposed to teach on today. Yeah, there. But it, you'll see why it's pertinent. Okay, go ahead. Well, I was going to, two things, I guess, but one when you were talking about the weeds growing in. But, you know, I always could admire people who could go to, like, a car auction, and they would see a, you know, 55 Chevy, and it was totally rusty and horrible. But they could see what it could look like if it was fixed up and perfected. Right. And now, if I'm wrong, I know you'll correct me, but, like, in the postmodern, that's where they're going is to the kingdom of God. They're going to create it themselves. In the emergent worldview, you're already there. You just have to bring yeah. everybody on board with right. you. In other words, instead of cutting out all the rust and putting new metal in and doing everything you need to make it look good and then getting layers of paint on it 
and getting an engine that runs into it and making a beautiful car that could go to an auction. You don't do any of that. It's a lot of work. You sit by the car and meditate. Exactly. Beautiful car. It runs down the road. But then when you open your eyes, there's your rusted out piece of junk that, that won't run. See, humans cannot survive unless they compartmentalize this philosophy and live the rest of their life as if non-contradiction really does apply and words really do have meaning and logic is valid. They can't publish a book without doing that, and that's what we pointed out in the debate. Yes? Yeah, uh, I think uh, meditation used to mean we used to review we used to review things that we studied and go over it oh, yeah. and outline it. And uh, these religious gurus or whatever from the East or whatever took our word meditation and, and uh, distorted it. Well, they turned it into emptying your mind and becoming one with the universe, which is not really possible. See, I, I meditate on Scripture every single day but what that means is I end up with applications and illustrations and understanding. And so I love getting in the text and just understanding what God said. And it's so exciting to me to think, how could I preach this so that people would get it and God would use that to change their lives? I'm not good enough to make up a religion, but I can know what God said. If, and so we're contemplating what God said. Now, let's move to that. We're going to go to the Mount of Transfiguration, my friends. Because what all we just said lays the groundwork for the profundity of this Mount of Transfiguration. And so we're going to do a little review, and then eventually I want to get back to Acts and continue on from where we were. But Luke, now I'm going to do the Luke version of the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, remember a little bit earlier, Jesus said, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Even the more critical scholars have to believe that that's at least partially fulfilled right here at the Mount of Transfiguration where they see the glorified Christ as a preview of future glory. Luke 9, 28, 29, some days after these things, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. So back in verses 26 and 27, which I'll read to you, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully that some of those standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. See the kingdom of God. Well, this is a preview, and the sum of them turns out to be Peter, John, and James. Now, there is way more going on here than might meet the eye. It's amazing how Luke put echoes of Israel's past into his Luke Acts. Because if you look at the Matthew account of this, there was a, a discussion at Caesarea Philippi, if I remember right. 
Some scholars believe that this mount was actually Hebron. And that was a place where the ancient Semitic people believed that that's where the angels came down back in Genesis 6. And it's associated, if, if we don't want to be sure, we're not totally sure if that's the case. But even if we just make a general mount and not say which one, a lot of things happen on mounts in the Bible, including Mount Sinai, where Moses went and saw the glory of God. So seeing the glory on a mount, at the least, is an echo of Sinai. Now, what happened earlier in their history? Well, a couple of things happened. First of all, Moses went up there and God, Yahweh, in tangible form, spoke to Moses but what happened? They got tired of waiting. They became impatient. Well, what happened to Moses? He's never going to come back. So they made a golden calf. Remember that? Yeah, and it, it was, that was bad. The golden calf is bad. Now, then it, it happens again, and Moses has the ten words, as it says in the Hebrew, that were inscribed by the very finger of God. And we had this narrative about the glory on the mount. But there were other incidents before that even. In Genesis 22.2, Brian, could you be looking up Genesis 22.2? And then, Eric, could you look up Exodus 3, 1 and 2? And we'll just see how there are echoes of God meeting people on mounts that show, I'll tell you where this is going, that Jesus is the very son of God and he himself is Yahweh incarnate on a mount speaking infallible true words, God. Yes. Genesis 2, this is God speaking. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains uh, of which I tell you. So he went up on a mountain in obedience to God to offer Isaac. It took quite a step of faith, didn't it? What happened when he, Eric, what happened when he got up there? There was a substitute given, so he was able to go free. So what is the substitute prefigure? Prefigure is Christ, who ends up being the substitute lamb. In fact, the question is, Dad, where is the lamb? And what's supplied is the ram, which kind of leaves you hanging. There may be a lamb supplied one day, Jesus being the lamb of God. So there's Yeah, a behold the lamb of God. Yeah, so, know. see, to me, this type of reading... It's so exciting that it'll keep me excited the rest of my life. I love this because you're not getting, you don't have to meditate in an altered state of consciousness. You actually have to be more conscious because you're reading and this would not be valid unless Luke intends us to see this point. I believe that he does. We'll see a little more in a bit how we can see that Luke intended. So here was a mountain for an offering and a son, and God provided. Now, uh, Exodus 3, yeah. 1 and 2. 
It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Yeah, and there was Yahweh. Remember, or take off your shoes, this holy ground. And so we have mountains. Then and again in Exodus 19, 19, let me just read a little bit. Sorry, verse 17, Exodus 19, 17. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet, verse 19, grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and the Lord, the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people so they will not break through to the Lord and gaze, and many of them perish. God was so awesome and glorious and holy and powerful and mighty that if sinners were to come unbidden, they would certainly die. Now, the Hebrews knew that, and that's why they were so careful about the Holy of Holies and who can go in there and under what terms. What would happen if he decided, well, I think I'll just go take a gaze? (laughs) What happened when Korah and company decided, why should Moses be the one who speaks for God? (laughs) Right into hell. Do you believe that if the Bible's true, which I believe it is, and God did create the world out of nothing. The whole of Genesis through Revelation is the very word of God. And we've been talking about the temptation, the fall and all that. If all of this is true, that God alone would be able to provide so that we could come into his presence. Or would you believe that man can decide how to do it? God decided to come down in glory and smoke and power and thunder on Sinai. Man decided a golden calf is a lot prettier and safer. No smoke, no earthquake, no, just this piece of gold. Why do you think people make idols? Because they control them. Man created God rather than God created man. And I mean that in the generic sense. A human beings male, female, he created them in his image. And so idolatry is the worship of the creature. And if we can make the golden calf, we can grind it into little pieces like Moses made them do and put it in the water and drink it. But what about God? He's so awesome we might die. So the mountain is a review here of previous events. Genesis 22, Exodus 3, Exodus 19, Again, Exodus 34, the two tablets, verse 1, come to Sinai, present yourself. Verse 3, Exodus 34, no man can come with you. 
Don't let anybody be seen on the mountain, even the flocks. Two stones, verse 4. The Lord descended in the cloud, verse 5, stood there with him, and he called upon the name of the Lord. Let me quick say something about that. I love it. People are coming to Christ through the apologetics and exegetical ministry we do called Critical Issues Commentary. And a couple of those I've been discipling, even though they live elsewhere in the world or the country, and they're growing. And one who is a Catholic who came to Christ just very recently. And so he's just eating up this material as he's growing in God. And he said, well, now I need you to tell me how to pray. Because Rome prescribed, you got to do this, you got to do that, and you better be a holy man. And the more pious you are, then God maybe will hear you. Holy Father, he's so holy, God must hear him all the time. And they have all of these prescriptions about what's necessary that somebody dreamed up that God never said. So I had thought, how can I tell this new convert from Rome how he can pray? And I just pointed him to Hebrews 4.16. Jesus intercedes for us at the right hand of God. And he bids us to come in prayer and let our needs and supplications be known. He hears us. Mary can't hear you because she's a finite human being. To say Mary is going to hear everybody is equivocating and turning her into a goddess that doesn't exist. Only the triune God of the Bible has the attributes of God. But the Bible tells us that Jesus died for our sins, was raised from the dead. He is there in the presence of God interceding for us. And he says to come and let him know our needs. And because he's infinite God, he can hear 300 million people at the same time and and respond in answer to prayer to all of them. Yes. That's why we ask for prayer. Does Jesus ever say, well, if you would have prayed 10 times a day for a half hour each time, then I would have heard you. Now think about it. But people think that. They join convents and monasteries. They beat themselves. I I reviewed a book where a supposed Baptist was saying we need to learn from these mystics in the Middle Ages how to be spiritually disciplined. Hang yourself in shackles on a granite wall so it sucks the heat out of your body. If you do that long enough, then God will really like you. Dear ones, this is what people want to hear. It's a lie. There's the deal. He loves you. He died for you. He cares for you. He intercedes for you. And if you're in such bad shape, and I've been there more often than I wish recently, where you're so sick and so ready to die, but you want to still be here, and all you can do is say, Jesus, help me. Help me. I, 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 don't, I, I wasn't well enough to even think of some articulate prayer that would impress Jesus. But I never stopped believing he died for me. And God did heal me, and I did come back, and I am here, and I am teaching, because God does answer prayer. But had I gone to glory, I still would be with Jesus, only more so. Same for you. You don't have to be more pious for Jesus to hear you. 
that all of the suffering and sorrow and discomfort Jesus did when he when he went into Gethsemane and sweat drops of blood and was then he was abused and beaten and he died on the cross and he raised was raised from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high and all we need to do is ask him because he has perfect love we don't have to prove sincerity we need to believe the promises of god and the fact is that god perfectly loves us and he's already done it all so what was i going to answer that catholic guy go to jesus and tell him what you need to tell him he cares for you and he loves you believe the promises of god i i need to write this article my daughter reminded me of this there's a passage that says cast all your cares on him because he cares for you is that a promise it's instructions based on a promise and that he cares for me is what i need to know so exodus 34 9 now if i found favor in your sight O lord i pray let the lord go long in our midst even though the people are so obstinate pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession exodus 34 9 something needed to happen so that god would go with them and moses interceded on the mountain in the presence of yahweh that he would forgive the sins of the people and go with them does that make sense next slide and behold there were two now we're on the mount of transfiguration with jesus or we're reading about it there were two men who were talking with him and who were moses and elijah who appeared in glory and were speaking about his departure, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Now, I love how this is just telling us something we need to know because it's so biblical. Moses and Elijah, Moses was the one who in Deuteronomy 18, 15, said that God would raise up a prophet like me, and when he does, listen to him. And we're going to see that that's important because Moses is there when God the Father says, this is my son, listen to him. We have no doubt. There's no doubt who Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18.15. Is there? Jesus. Is there any implication for the new covenant there? Who was the lawgiver of the old covenant? Moses. Who is the lawgiver of the new covenant? Jesus. We have some friends that can't seem to figure that out. They, they think Moses is binding in just about any detail, despite the fact he told us to listen to Jesus. Not that we are lawbreakers, but that we are honoring God by listening to Jesus. Now, Elijah was a prophet known as a great man of God. We know John the Baptist fulfills the Elijah role, announcing the coming of the Lord. But he also spoke powerfully, and he was a 
great man of God. And the prophets in the Old Testament applied Moses and predicted Messiah. Now, I believe under the New Covenant, the reason why apostles had to have seen the resurrected Christ and had to have been personally taught by him was because revelation that's binding on you, dear saints, has to have been given objectively. It's not, I think God said. I think God said. I think I mentioned it in my last sermon. If we fasted and then prayed for days and then got a revelation, it was always goofy. Okay? What we need to know is what God already said. Now, Christ is God the Son, who is the prophet like Moses, only greater. He's the Holy One, the second person of the Trinity, who came from heaven to earth. Right? And he spoke words in the languages of the people that were hearing him, and they were meaningful to him and to them. And he, being God, cannot lie. His words are true, and they're binding. And they speak to us about God's promises, his nature, his virtues, his persons, his mighty deeds, his saving work, and his future glory. Remember the future glory. Now, there are some words in the Greek here that help us see that we're not getting this wrong. I have in red on the PowerPoint the word departure. Now, in the Greek, it's the word exodus. Literally, exodus. So there they are talking about an exodus. Now, if you don't get an allusion to Moses in the Old Testament, you're not reading. Now, maybe your Bible has a footnote that tells you that. I don't know. But it literally says exodus. And then the word for uh, to fulfill is plerao, and it's, it's an infinitive, to fulfill. And so there's an exodus that's to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Now, in Luke Acts, here's the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's Moses and Elijah. Here's Jesus. And they're talking about his exodus, so Moses and Elijah know what's going to happen in this case and future glory, suffering and glory. And uh, in Luke, once we get a little later into Luke 9.51, the entire rest of the book of Luke up until the arrival in Jerusalem is called the travel narrative. There's a literary purpose for why these things are laid out the way they are. So everything in Luke is focused on going up to Jerusalem to suffer and to fulfill God's purpose and to have this exodus that's going to bring the people out of bondage and bring them to God. There's an exodus, a second exodus, a better exodus. It's so fantastic. I get excited about it. I got my, I, I kept giving away my Tannehill, the narrative unity of Luke X helped me understand this. When I was in seminary, some professor told me I went and bought the books, gave them away, and I had to buy them again. And then I bought them on my logos on the hard drive. Nobody can get it. <laughs> and I can bring it up. It's, it's just learning how to read. 
Luke, see the older critical uh, people would say, well, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? How do they know? Why? Well, how, well, this seems to contradict with Matthew. Matthew was, verse 18, he was saying this. And here Luke is saying this. And then Matthew said, he said this parable over here. And then Luke, dump all that. The best thing that happens is forget it. Let Luke speak to us using his skill as a writer so we know what Luke is saying. You can also see uh, Luke's focus in his writing because in Matthew account, it just says that they talked, that there's nothing about the words that are being said. Yeah, about the Exodus. Whereas in Luke, it's strictly he's focusing in on that. Yeah, on the journey to Jerusalem. It's brilliant. And then when you get into Acts, which we're supposed to be, I'll get back there, I promise. It's reviewing these things and fulfilling them. And in Acts, you have other journeys. And Paul has a journey in Acts to Jerusalem to be rejected. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to be rejected. And in Acts, Paul is going to Jerusalem to be rejected. Here we have a prophet, Elijah, talking with him about this exodus and this fulfillment. There's a prophet in Acts who says, takes this, uh, what was it, a belt, Agabus? This is what's going to happen to the man. He predicted what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And he said, why are you crying and breaking my heart? I must do this. So God's purpose is going on. I love reading. Don't you love to read? You learn how to read, and you'll see the glory of God in the word of God. So the Exodus is an allusion to Moses. The prophet is talking with them about what's going to happen in Jerusalem, which Jesus has already said. God's redeeming purpose is now focused on Jerusalem and even future final fulfillment. Jerusalem turned out to not be the end, but the beginning. Look at the end of Luke 24. You shall be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the innermost parts of the world, the beginning of Acts. Jerusalem is the beginning. Jesus ascends into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. Yes, Brother Eric. Yeah, yeah, I have a question actually. I when I was a kid, you know, went to our church. It was a you know, Protestant denominational church. And I've asked myself this many times. Either I was probably it was me not just not paying attention very well or they just weren't teaching because I've been struck again and again and today our teaching today really hits upon it the enormous amount of prophecy in the Old Testament how it's connected to the new and, and that's the big picture that's what you were talking about a minute ago when you said some of the minutiae that people focus on forget that the big picture is that this is the huge you know, big picture or the grand um, design of redemption. And it starts back there in the Old Testament. And I just feel like either I was just missing something or a lot of the churches just don't teach how what a profound connection there well, is. how blessed we are to be able to see these things. And we've been told that, that we're blessed. We're blessed to have ears to ears and eyes to see. I pulled out 
the other day when I was working on this, a commentary on Luke I'd bought in the 80s. And I thought, I wonder what they were saying. This was a good guy. He believed the Bible, but I was reading it. He must have spent several paragraphs figuring out how they knew this was Moses and Elijah. And he never got the, the big picture very well. Luke tells us it's Moses and Elijah. I want to know why he tells us that. I don't care how he figured it out. Or Peter must have figured it out and then told Luke. That's not the point. And so, yeah, so many uh, times it's just not getting to the point. Now, let me give you a preview of next week. I'm teaching Sunday school next week, right, Eric? I think so, yes. They want to make three tabernacles. So let's learn how to read. Take the notes home with you and bring them back. These tabernacles, by the way, are skene, and it was for the Feast of Tabernacles of Booze. They reminded them of the wilderness, so there's an illusion. But notice in red, it says, now realizing what he's saying, Luke tells us that to tell us that Peter had the wrong idea. He didn't get the point, but Luke wants us to get it. And then, in the more preview, listen to him. Who speaks for God? Jesus. And then we're going to go to Acts. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, that we can gather and help each other learn and grow. Thank you for your kindness and goodness and grace. And Lord, we know it's by your grace that we have ears to hear and eyes to see that we care about what you've said. Thank you that we can go to our Lord Jesus Christ at the throne and he hears us and cares for us. And we can believe that promise and count on it. And we thank you, dear Lord, in his holy name, in Jesus' name, amen.